Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Folta. I'm a professor, a podcast host, and someone who cares about science communication and helping people understand what the innovations are so that we can get to applications faster. We've talked a lot about gene editing over the last couple of years, including how gene editing can affect human disease. But gene editing isn't necessarily a precise cut and dry process. And so some of the effects that can happen need to be detected in order to make sure that it's working properly. We're speaking with Kevin Blau. He's a research associate at the Gene Editing Institute at Christiana Care and a PhD candidate at University of Delaware. So welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thanks, Dr. Fulton. It's great to be here. Now, it's really great that you're here. I read the news release about the software that was released and its utility in helping to understand on-target variability in gene editing. But let's just, before we go into that, we're picking up a lot of new people with the podcast. So if you could start out by telling me about what is gene editing and how does it contrast against something like good old genetic engineering, like adding a transgene? So gene editing is basically very similar to what it says on the tin, gene editing. Um, In terms of uh, your individual DNA sequence, you can think of it more of like a word processor, um, utilizing tools like CRISPR-Cas9 or previously talons or zinc finger nucleases. What you do is um, you target a specific site on a specific gene and change the sequence of that endogenous gene Uh, in comparison to something like transgenesis where you're implanting another gene from an outside source um, in gene editing you're actually editing your specific genes okay so so it's uh just to continue your analogy with word processor it's kind of like erasing a letter or a word from a book in the library Whereas the old school approach was to take a book off the shelf or put a book on the shelf and change, you know, much larger range of genetic information, right? Is that where we're going? Exactly. Okay. So one of the problems, and let's, maybe we can keep using that analogy is that when you go to the library of the human genome and you erase that one letter from that one book, um, it doesn't always erase one letter, right? So, so what else happens uh, when you do gene editing? Gene editing using CRISPR-Cas complexes are sort of a two-step process. A CRISPR-Cas complex will go to the site at the DNA and cut it. And then the natural uh, cells repair mechanisms will repair that site. So when when you're talking about CRISPR gene editing, really the only thing that the CRISPR complex is doing is actually going to a specific site and cutting the DNA at the site. The 
cells own DNA repair processes are taking care of everything else. And so there are a lot of sort of overlapping uh, pathways that interact or compete directly with each other to lead to the repair of the DNA. One of them is called non-homologous end joining and is sort of a random way to repair DNA. Bases can be removed, inserted um, at the site. Another process is micromediated end joining, which is a more predictable but more deleterious way of repairing the DNA. Usually what we're hoping to do if we're looking at changing a specific site in the DNA, such as if we were doing, for instance, sickle cell targeting, where you're hoping to correct a sickle cell mutation with the normal type DNA, you'd use what's called a repair template, a strand of DNA that sort of acts as an instruction manual on how to repair that site. But that requires an entirely different DNA repair uh, mechanism. And so what ends up happening is when all of these pathways compete and interact with each other, you don't end up with just the DNA change that you're hoping for. You end up with what is called, quote, genetic scar tissue. Um, and this genetic scar tissue, specifically at the site, is something that needs to be accounted for and very uh, robustly characterized. Okay, so you, you mentioned sickle cell disease. Um, and how Cas9 has been used in repair. Um, we've actually covered this on the podcast before. What are some of the other diseases that contain genetic errors that could lead to disease that could potentially be corrected using gene editing approaches? There are hundreds of uh, inherited genetic diseases that CRISPR could potentially be used to treat. Um, sickle cell anemia is obviously the one that uh, our group at Christiana Care is focused on a lot right now. Um, but other inherited diseases could include uh, things like cystic fibrosis. In addition to that, gene editing can be used in um, not necessarily inherited diseases, but in cancer. Um, CRISPR is being used in a lot of uh, potential cancer treatments that are in clinical trials right now. And the Gene Editing Institute is very interested in also utilizing CRISPR um, as a tool to edit cancer cells in order to make them more receptive to chemotherapy. Okay, yeah, so we covered a bunch of these topics in the, in the podcast, and it seems like such an interesting approach that being able to do gene editing to uh, make these corrections. But you talked about this repair process. You know, you've got a number of ways in which the repair process happens. Um, some ways it's real sloppy, some ways it's not. Um, and, and sometimes we want it to be sloppy. You know, sometimes if we're trying to defeat the function of a gene. But I guess the big question going forward is that how do you know that if you're doing a gene therapy technique, for instance, and trying to get uh, cystic fibrosis, you know, corrected in a population of lung cells. How can you know which ones have the good correction and which ones have the sloppy correction? So what we generally use for um, testing the efficacy of CRISPR edits is a method called Sanger sequencing. Um, Anybody who works with DNA sequencing would probably be very familiar with this term. Sanger sequencing is sort of seen as the gold standard uh, for DNA sequencing in a lot of uh, general labs. The 
mechanism of Sanger sequencing is basically you'll receive an output file um, called an AB1 file or a chromatogram that'll contain the overlapping sequences of all of the potential uh, DNA sequences that make up the uh, population that you are sequencing. These files, um, generally, if you're looking at a population of clones or a, a, a population of DNA that you've amplified via PCR from a patient sample or something like that, would be very similar to each other. They're all DNA from the same site. They're all the same sequences of DNA. And so they'd all be identical. In CRISPR edits or gene edited DNA sequences, however, that is a bit different. Uh, starting at where the CRISPR cut site is, for instance, you end up with a lot of overlapping peaks as if you have a DNA sequence of three base pairs and DNA sequence with two base pairs deleted, um, those would overlap with each other and it would shift where the peaks lie. So the output of it is um, very complex. It looks very messy after the cut site and that type of DNA file is what we'll generally refer to as a convoluted DNA sequence. And sort of parsing apart these DNA sequences and utilizing, um, finding the data that you can gather from these is the purpose of why we developed Decoder in the first place. Okay, so before we dump it, jump into Decoder, let's just see if we can give a little clarity to that for the audience that maybe doesn't remember Sanger sequencing. <laughs> Um, you know, that's a kind of an old school trick, right? Fred Sanger made this up a long time ago. What the idea would be is that if you could amplify the gene that you're, that you've attempted to edit, you can amplify that gene specifically. So you don't care about a whole genome, you know, just that region that where you made this change. And when you sequence it using Sanger sequencing, you get this output, which is like a bunch of little peaks. And each one of those peaks represents a different letter of DNA. And so just by analogy, if we were talking, going back to your word processing um, example, if you said um, uh, the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane is the original gene, you may see something that says the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane. Other times you'll see the rain in in falls mainly on the plane, the rain in falls mainly on the plane. So you get these whole bunch of differences around that site that was modified, but you don't necessarily, um, it's very difficult to sort those out because when you, you see this agreement at the beginning and the end, but the middle is a mess. Is that what you're talking about being able to deconvolute? Yes, exactly. So in Sanger sequencing, um, using the uh, rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane analogy, all of those individual sequences would be overlapping on top of each other in the output. So all of those sequences that you just mentioned start with the rain in. And so if you overlapped all those together, you'd see a clear the rain in, um, in that output. But starting at Spain, all of the letters would start overlapping on top of each other and it would be pretty impossible to read manually. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So, so when we come back from the break, we'll talk about how you deconvolute that. How do you tease that apart in order to better understand what the specific changes are that have gone into that population of 
cells in a given patient or in a given petri dish. Uh, this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. It was over eight years ago that three lumpy rats scared the world. You might remember the famous paper by Theralini et al., where claimed that rats fed GE corn or the herbicide Roundup had a high incidence of grotesque tumors. They looked like tube socks stuffed with ping pong balls. Scientists immediately jumped on the work, criticizing it, citing that it mainly appeared staged that the numbers were too small, and that the rat model used was designed to grow tumors in that time frame. In the subsequent eight years, nobody has reproduced those data. Four very well-funded and conducted experiments refuted the shocking 2012 paper. But that image has become part of the myth the paper shut down those use of GE crops in food insecure nations like Kenya and scared the bejesus out of affluent white people in the U.S. and EU. The lumpy rats became an icon of the dangers of technology, despite the fact there was no danger. Disinformation has consequences. Use this podcast to arm yourself against bad information. Share the science. Engage. Tell the truth. We have a moral obligation to stand up for those who can benefit from technology. And all must do our part to fight the deliberate, intentional, false information, especially during a global pandemic. Now back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Kevin Blau. He's a research associate in the Gene Editing Institute at Christiana Care and a PhD candidate of, for the at the University of Delaware. How much more time do you have left to go in your program? Uh, I am in my third year right now, so hopefully. So eight more to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, based on my experience. <laughs> Yeah, it took well, it took me seven point six years, and you know who's counting. But how how much uh, how how much further do you have to go, and what do you want to do next? So in my specific project, I'm actually almost done with all of the initial findings that I wanted to look at. But as you know, the uh, the initial research that you start building all three of your specific aims for ends up all just becoming your first aim, and then you go forward on that. So. Yeah. <laughs> now you've got multiple levels of disappointment to go through yet. So <laughs> Yeah, no, it's uh, it's 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 exciting. So is it actually working with gene editing and and uh, polymorphisms around uh, gene edited sites? Yeah. Um specifically what I'm looking at is uh sort of characterizing the ways that DNA is repaired after a cut site um across multiple different cell types and uh multiple different sort of uh, repair environments using a in vitro gene editing tool. 
Yeah, it's 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 an interesting idea because I know that you know some one of the things I thought about when I was thinking researching this topic, and I kind of remembered was there's were certain drugs that inhibited different types of repair, mm-hmm. and I know like in breast cancer and uh, you know uh, BRCA type breast cancers, there are drugs that do inhibit the repair process, and is something like that possible to limit the way that uh, that therapeutic gene edit to to add an enhanced corrected sequence would have maybe a higher tendency of being incorporated. Yeah. So there are um, several tests that are in place looking at specific uh, sort of non-homologous end joining inhibitors, for instance, and seeing how that will affect uh, your exact repair, your HDR mediated repair. Um, Other ways that we're looking at it are on a patient by patient basis. one thing that we've recently sort of uh, come across during our sickle cell studies is that from one patient to another, the rates of DNA repair and the types of outcomes that you receive can differ very wildly, um, even when you're attempting HDR repair. Hmm. So looking at it at that patient by patient level and seeing how um, those can either be uh, sort of hemmed in and narrowed down so you can get just the edit that you're looking for or whether different approaches or different mechanisms could be used in order to cater to a specific patient's uh, DNA repair likelihoods are uh, things that we're looking into. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, we talk more and more about personalized medicine on the podcast. And it seems to me that understanding a given patient's repair proto uh, phenotype you know what what is their um likelihood to adopt one repair mechanism over another could that be something that could essentially judge whether or not a type of therapy like this could be useful is is that kind of where we're going yes so um what we'd ideally uh be able to do on a patient by patient level is to utilize their basic um DNA sequence that you can get from the patient at point of care and uh, clarify what types of gene editing reactions would be most feasible to treat that specific patient. Um, The ideal goal, of course, would always be to have one specific type of medicine for uh, one specific type of patient. But as we move into, um, as we move further and further into the gene editing field, we have collectively as a, as a field come to realize that that's simply not the case. Um, there are a lot of research that is, there's a lot of research that's focused on sort of narrowing those down and sort of trying to make all of the holes square for those square pegs. Um, but another approach that a lot of groups are doing is sort of gathering square pegs and round pegs and triangle pegs in order to fit them into the specific uh, cases for each patient. No, really good. Well, let's, let's talk back about how you deconvolute these sequences. So we talked about these jumbled areas of sequence that we would obtain from massive analysis of a population of cells of an individual or, you know, or any whatever, um, you know, in a Petri dish that had been gene edited. And you talk about this idea of decoder, uh, D-E-C-O-D-R. What is it and how does it work? So 
what we generally do in a gene editing reaction, um, if we're treating either a set of cells that we would get from a patient or a um, or creating a specific DNA mutation, um, what we do is we target a population of cells. So when we target, say, half a million to a million cells with that DNA, um, with the if we target that half a million to a million cells with a gene editing reaction, what we end up getting out of that is half a million to a million cells, which each have their own individual potential edits. So if you take a portion of that population and isolate their DNA in order to run it into Sanger sequencing, you'd end up with one of these convoluted DNA messes that contain uh, half a million to a million cells worth of DNA. Utilizing an inductive a deconvolution algorithm, we take the overlapping sequences of a Sanger sequencing file and break it down into clean tabulated um, individual DNA sequences. Do you can you see heterogeneity in one cell, meaning like on two homologous chromosomes, see different variations? Yes, um, that's actually a very interesting question. Generally, what we'll do um, with these gene editing reactions is we'll do what's called a bulk population. We'll take a portion of that half a million to a million cells and sort of gain an idea of what the types of editing outcomes we would expect from them to be. Um, for that, we utilize one of the, the main, the strongest functionalities of decoder in its ability to piece apart all of these low probability and very variable types of editing reactions. What we then do after that, however, is individually clone out each of those cells. And so we take, um, say, 200 wells of um, in 96 well plates, 200 to 500 of those, and clone out individual cells into those and allow those to clonally expand. Then when you perform Sanger sequencing and subsequent decoder analysis on that, you'll get an even split of 50-50 one sequence and 50-50 another. Or in the case of um, maybe cancer cells or cells with non-disjunction events where they have more than two copies of a gene, you'd end up with three or four or five or however many copies um, of that gene are in that population. I see. So you can use this essentially as a tool to keep sharpening the point of the therapeutic um, uh, population of cells. So te teasing out one that matches the correct Sanger sequence and then testing that using the software, interrogating that to identify that it was really a um, homogenous uh, set of sequences that were the ones that you wanted for the therapy you were targeting. Is that what it, where this is going? Yes. So generally in a lot of the gene editing research in the mid to late 2010s, what we'd look for is a specific sequence that we're trying to find. And um, if we're doing an HDR repair reaction, we'd see that this specific sequence is present in 20% of the population. However, we don't necessarily know based off that whether the population that we're looking at is contains 20% of cells that have that change in one of the two alleles that they have, or 20% of the population, 
or 10% of the population has changes in both of their alleles, leading to 20% of the overall cells having that change. And so that is why um, even at this stage, clonal analysis of the cells is necessary if you're trying to generate a specific DNA change. No, I understand. That seems to make a whole lot of sense. So if people wanted to look for this program and uh, use it on their own, is it an open source program that they can download somewhere? Decoder is currently freely available um, to any researcher who wants to use it or anybody who's interested in trying it out at decoder.org. And it's spelled D-E-C-O-D-R, right? Yes, it is yeah. D-E-C-O-D-R.org. Okay, and how do they, what does that stand for? Decoder stands for Deconvolution of Complex DNA Repair. Okay, really good. And so this is, you know, it seems like a, it's, it's an interesting tool and it was good to read about because anytime we can learn more about how to make gene editing a little more applicable, especially in the area of human disease, it's really exciting. And critics will say that one of the limitations is the sloppiness of the process. And this is just one way that looks like it can help sort that out a bit. So if people wanted to learn more about this, say in social media, is there any place where you communicate more about the project? Um, you can follow any of the goings on at the Gene Editing Institute, including any of uh, the decoder updates or advancements that are coming up over the next couple months um, at Gene Editing DE on both Twitter and Facebook. All right, real good. So, Kevin, thank you very much for joining me today. Best wishes going forward in your degree and looking forward to good things in the future. Thank you much. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write us a review on iTunes. You know the drill. Uh, tell a friend. It's still amazing that people will write me emails saying, I never knew this was here. And now I have a giant archive of things I have to read, uh, have to listen to uh, in order to get caught up. So do everybody a favor by telling them early and often. You know, uh, graffiti it onto a prominent viaduct near you. Uh, this is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but... It has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. 
With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.